This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor and I have talked about what the show is going to be about, but she would not tell me what the chit-chat was because she didn't <laughs> want to lose the energy of the story. All I know is that it's a farm story, so we all wait with bated breath. Okay, so you know how it was like, when's Ferrari going to have her baby? When's Ferrari going to have her baby, right? And finally <laughs> I got fed up. And for those who are new to this show, Ferrari is a goat. And um, I put her back in the other pasture. Well, the last time that we recorded, after we were done recording, I get up, I go outside. I'm going to do some stuff out in the backyard. And I swear I hear a baby goat. And I'm like, huh, okay. And then I I had stuff in my hands, so I put it down, and I'm getting ready to go, you know, out back, back and take a look. And I hear the baby goat again. And this time, that baby goat is not messing around. It is loud and demanding. And I went, oh, crap. So I dropped what I was doing and I went running out back and I don't see a baby goat. Oh, but I hear a baby goat. <laughs> so I let myself into the pasture, try, you know, do the gates, keep the dogs from getting out, you know. And then I see this little baby goat way over in the middle of a strand of trees by itself, crying bloody murder. And this time I know exactly what's happened. This is whose baby is that? Part two. Once again, Ferrari has had a baby and completely forgotten about having a baby. So I'm like, okay, okay. So I walk over and I grab this little thing and I pick it up and I try and bring it to Ferrari, who's running around manic, like she doesn't know what just happened. And I'm guessing maybe two hours based on how dry the baby is and the state of Ferrari's backside and everything. And I, and I already know, I know what's going down. The last time this happened, I had somebody I could call for help. This time I'm on my own. I'm going solo. So first step, get the baby out of the pasture. So I get the baby out of the pasture and I close the the gate because if I leave that gate open dogs are going to disappear goats are going to disappear and I'm going to be there trying to round everybody up step two get Ferrari horns come in very handy as handles but Ferrari does not want to be moved and I have to drag this 80 pound goat and goats are so much stronger for their weight than people are drag her get her to the gate Somehow keep the gate open, but not so open that nobody else can get out and get her out. And she, I got her by one horn and she is fighting me every single step of the way. And in case you haven't heard, 
lot of energy physically. <laughs> my strong suit these days. I have tachycardia when I'm on my feet and it's just insane. So I'm fighting my own body and I'm fighting Ferrari and I finally get her out of the gate and I get the gate closed. Step three, get the baby into the second smaller pasture with the baby with the better shelter. But there's no gate or anything like Ferrari's just out in the open. But I'm like, okay, she found some trees. She's going to eat weeds. She's not going to run away. I got to go haul my butt all the way across there, get the baby where the baby needs to be first. And meanwhile, the baby's screaming bloody murder and because it's hungry. And then I got to go do the same thing for Ferrari. But this time, thankfully, I can just get some feed in a bucket and shake it and Ferrari will come because I don't have to worry about all the other goats headbutting each other or her or me or the baby because they're all still locked in the pasture. So I finally get Ferrari and the baby together in the same place. Step four, get that baby nursing because if baby goats don't get a certain amount of colostrum within the first 24 hours, they will not make it. They don't survive. They need that colostrum. But Ferrari has already forgotten that she's had a baby. So she has no interest in a baby nursing on her. And babies, when they're very first born, are very, very, very stupid. They don't know how to find a nipple. So trying to get this 80-pound goat to hold still so that <laughs> the baby who thinks the neck is a nipple will latch on, yeah, 15 minutes of that nonsense is it wasn't going to happen. So I'm like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? So next... I get a bottle, like a, a feeding bottle for babies for like when they their mothers don't nurse them. And I tried to milk Ferrari into that bottle, which is crazy, insane, difficult. But I managed to get a couple ounces of colostrum out of her. And I fed the baby and the baby was very grateful for it. And I go, OK, I got at least a couple of ounces of colostrum into her. Now what? And then I was like, I've got to, the only way that this goat is going to bond with this baby is the exact same thing that had to happen last time. But I had somebody that could hold her while I could get the baby to latch on is is holding her, like hobbling her so that she can't move. And I was had to do this by myself. And it is absolutely impossible to get this goat to hold still and get the baby to latch on at the same time. So I go and I track down um, like halter type material. I basically wrapped this goat's horns like a Christmas package and tie her to tie her head to a, a massive pole that's holding up a structure so that her body can move, but her head can't. And then that gives me some kind of leverage to at least keep her in place. And I finally got that baby to latch on and it nursed. And then it's like the flip switched inside Ferrari's head. And she's like, oh, right. I had a baby. And so at that point, I felt safe, like I could untangle her, un, you know, untie her, which is good because she'd been fighting it so much. She'd gotten her neck all in a weird position and couldn't unstick herself. So I got that all undone. And then she starts sniffing the baby and licking the baby. And I sit down and gulp air because I'm so freaking out of breath from all the back and forth and running and tying and holding and yanking and pulling and whatever. So, yeah, Ferrari had a baby. Whose baby is this part, too? And, All right, um, now I can see why you didn't tell girl. me the story ahead of time. That's a good story. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so this, she's a cute, adorable little girl, very, very energetic and full of life, super healthy. And she's got little, like, her nose is bare, like, it's pink. 
and she's got a couple of spots on her ears where the the, the coloring is just a little bit lighter. So I'm calling her Spot. That's her name. Should be Spot's plural, but her name is Spot. And she is so adorable and cute. And now Ferrari's mom, who's you call I call Black Goat because she's she's the black goat. She's not the white goat or the brown goat. Um, she looks like a double wide trailer coming down the freeway. So she's probably going to have a baby or two any day now. So hopefully we won't go through the same situation, but she is the one that her first baby was Ferrari, who was butt first and almost didn't make it. So I'm paranoid whenever she has babies. So fingers crossed, we should have some more soon and hopefully not a redo of the redo of who baby whose baby is this that's my farm story for the week all right so we have a kind of a topic what are we what are we going to be talking about today taylor well this is a little bit random and probably a little bit meandering but it's going to focus on you know storytelling from tv type stuff tv shows and um i don't normally watch Netflix because I don't have it but there was something that I forget what it was they come out that I wanted to see so I got it for a month and since I got it for a month I was like well let me just binge everything that's on here that looks like it might possibly be interesting or good and that led to three shows one of which I have a takeaway saying please don't ever do this please don't do this it was a good show anyways and two recommendations and I will tell you what I thought was so awesome about them both from a storytelling perspective and also if you just are looking for something good to watch so let's start with the please don't do this one I'm not going to name the show because I don't want it to sound like I'm trash talking it I it was it was a sort of a fantasy type series I really enjoyed it I thought it was done better than most of what you normally find in that genre and yeah I thought it was really really well done however there was this plot device that was used that made me so angry <laughs> that I got up and left and I was like handed the remote to someone is like you watch it call me when this is done I I'm not going to put up with this bullcrap I left and and that for me, it's probably a little more bothersome than it would be for, you know, the average viewer, but it had to do with this. There was something that needed to happen that you knew needed to happen. They need uh, The characters needed to reach a certain place for reasons. And as the story progressed, those reasons for getting to that place became more and more dire. And... So much of what was happening in the story were the steps that needed to be taken to get to this place. There was it wasn't a place you could just get to easily, you know. You so there's a lot involved finding someone who could get you there, lots of stuff. And every time they got closer to getting to this place, something would happen that would thwart them or delay them and they're on a clock they need to get there by a certain time or bad things will happen and at first it might be somebody makes a mistake or there's a a fight that breaks out that closes off the easiest way to get there okay that's fair you know stuff like that does happen but then 
it's a situation where, oh, we invite you to have dinner with us tonight. No, no, we can't stay because X, Y, Z. No, I insist you must. And you can see the setup there. Now, something else is going to delay them from getting to this place. And then something else delays them from getting. And now that clock is ticking really, really hard. And the pathway to getting there is right there. And the person who needs to get there the most decides, well, this other thing is more important. So I'm not going to make this trip. You go on without me. And the story just keeps on going. So they've used this as, as a, a ticking clock sort of, you know, time bomb thing that if you don't do this, all these bad things will happen. And you keep, they kept stringing the audience along of all these delays of, that, that make it so that the character doesn't get there in time. And then right when they finally have the opportunity, and after all these sacrifices have been made, they make the decision not to do it. So in my opinion, what that meant was they pushed it too far. They'd used the same dangling carrot too many times and burned it out. And by the time it got close to the end of the story where they'd burned this out, kept dangling it like this is the ticking clock, this is the ticking clock. Me, my reaction is, you bleeping liars, it's not a ticking clock. You're using that to mess with my emotions. And I bet in the end, it's not even going to matter anyway, because something else is going to come up that resolves the issue that was driving them to have to get there in the first place that was making it so life or death. And of course, that's what happened. And it made me mad because it was so freaking predictable. And I felt like that's just lazy storytelling. So here's my advice to anyone who has a, a ticking clock or a you know life or death stakes sort of setup. You can't beat that horse to death. You have to use it judiciously because if you keep playing off of it and stringing the audience along of when's it going to happen? Are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? And you do that one too many times, some part of your audience is going to get fed up with you. And in this case, that part of the audience was me. But I think in written form, in book form, I think it's even more critical to get that type of ticking clock scenario correct. Because if you string it along too much, even if the scenario seems perfectly plausible and not contrived on its face, in totality, it's going to feel very manipulative and heavy-handed, and it's not going to be enjoyable. I don't know, because I'm speaking in vagueness without giving any details, I'm not sure I'm communicating my point effectively. So Steve, help me out here. Did I, did I make this clear? Do you understand? Um, do you have questions? Any feedback? And also Mike. I think that I do understand, and I, I was thinking of a book that I'm reading now where uh, two characters needed to be separated at this location where they were going, and no one could know that they were together, 
And that was that was like a big part of the story set up to make this happen. But to make the book work, the characters have to be together. So I don't know if the author just figured that out, but it's like all that went away. It's like the reason they had to be separate went away. So there, there's like chapter after chapter of we have to be separate and we have to pretend not to know each other. And then the next chapter, the need for that went away and they're back together again. And it's just like, what was the point of that? It was really, it aggravated me that they even went through that because it was not necessary for the plot. It was just a, a mechanism to get tension into the story. And okay, mechanism to get me. tension. Yeah, that's what I felt was going on with this urgency that we need to get to this location and you need to find so-and-so who can help you find the place and all of that. So much urgency and plot built around this thing that needs to happen. And in the end, they just walk away from it. Like, oh, well, I mean, we'll we'll deal with the consequences, but okay. And it's like the audience's emotions had been toyed with. And it made, it made me angry. Like, not angry like it actually mattered in the grand scheme of things, but... Like, that's not cool. Well, it made you angry enough to to stop watching, though, right? Yeah. I came back when all that nonsense was over just so I could see how it ended. But it ended exactly as I predicted it would because it was so blatant from about the halfway point that they kept stringing you along to get to this place. And the reason why they needed to get to this place, all life or deathy, and because they kept stringing the audience along, I knew, well, that's not going to happen. We're not going to get any resolution in that place. So therefore, this other thing's going to have to happen instead. And it was just like paint by number, right? The the acting, the dialogue, the story itself was all fantastic. But the tension buildup felt very paint by number because of the way that it just kept relying on the same ticking clock that the person who it should have mattered most to didn't seem to take seriously, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how, you know, I didn't write the story, so I can't say, oh, here's how it could have been done instead. But there are lots of ways to change the direction of a story when the first, the first thing you need to get to turns out not to be it after all or whatever, or you reduce the tension of needing to get to that place and put tension somewhere else, and that place becomes sort of like a a side thing for a while. There are ways to do it, and I just felt like this this is a good example of how you can really annoy an audience, even though the rest mm-hmm. of it is so good. You know, the rest of it was good enough that I was willing to put up with that annoyance for a certain amount of time, and then afterwards, I was just like, "This is stupid." And I caught up that left. So that's, yeah, it has to do with creating tension. And there is a right way. And apparently there can also be a wrong way. Who would have known? Um, well, in, in the course, case of the book that I was reading, um, I I sort of imagine this author is just not a plotter. He's a panster. And he just like realized, oh, I've, I shouldn't have done this. And 
I'm I'm just going to get out of it. But it, in a situation like you're describing, there is presumably some kind of a writer's room. There are multiple people in here exactly uh, talking things over and and they made the decision to add tension in this way. Uh, that that seems like a different level of I don't, I don't want to say bad planning because maybe it didn't impact other people the way it impacted you. Uh, but yeah. in, in the case of the author that wrote the book that I read, and I've read like a dozen books by this particular author, and I really enjoy his work. So it's like, I'm not going to quit reading his book because of this, but I just, you know, it was a little bit frustrating. But in the case of that, it, if it if it caused you or other people to walk away, that's that's kind of a it's a bigger thing. That's not what you want. Yeah. It's not what you want for your storytelling. And I think if in the end, like if this same ticking clock have to get to this location had been used as often as it did and the attempts to get there were thwarted as often as they were. And in the end, the person actually went through with it and got all the way there. And then something happened in that location that made it so that it turned out perhaps it wasn't the right place to have gone from the beginning. I could have totally bought into that. But it's the fact that they never made it there at all. And the story just found a way to resolve itself in spite of that. This thing that had been the center of the tension for so long, it just got bypassed. And that's where I I was like, no. I that's lazy. <laughs> I, I do not approve. Anyway, okay, so moving from what not to do into, oh, you might actually enjoy this territory. There are actually there are two shows that I watched, uh, each one only one season, um, that I would love to see more of. I thought each in their own right, each one was absolutely brilliant, brilliantly done. Um so the first is called The Recruit. And when I saw previews for it, I was like, eh, I don't know. But then I saw the first episode and by the end of the first episode, well, actually within like watch the first 10 minutes of one episode. And I was like, yes, I'm in. And the reason why I bought into it so quickly is because of the tone of the story. What the the story of the recruit basically follows um, a young guy, twenty four year old lawyer, who is recruited into the CIA, CIA as a lawyer, and the job of the lawyers is the CIA is their client, and they're trying to protect the CIA legally from the stuff that the CIA gets up to. So they end up in a lot of really awkward, you know, somebody screwed up over here, and this person got hurt. How do we? not turn this into an international incident legally without jeopardizing whatever. So that's sort of the gist of what these lawyers do. Now, I have no expertise whatsoever when it comes to the CIA. I have no idea how accurate of a portrayal of how the CIA operates this this show is. I, I don't know. But I do know that in the areas in which I do have a lot of knowledge, they got things very, very right. So that makes me go, well, I can just accept that this enough of this is probably accurate to at least build a functional basis for this story. And so 
it is, it follows this young guy, young lawyer, who is kind of, I don't want to say he's so much an adrenaline junkie, but he's a go fake it till you make it by the seat of your pants, thrives on the chaos of figuring out the chaos and just being in constant upheaval. Like that's his thing. And when he first arrives, and I'm not spoiling anything because this is all this this part takes place within like the first 30 minutes of the show. Um, in this environment, within the law office of the CIA, nobody trusts anybody and everybody's out to get everybody else because that is the only way to move up the ladder is if the person above you gets knocked off a peg. So you can't trust anybody. And he's just thrown into this environment and doesn't know how anything works. And he can't necessarily trust that the advice he's getting about how things works is accurate because his colleagues from day one are already trying to stab him in the back and make him look bad to make themselves look good. And they dump on his desk this um, boxes of what they call gray mail. And that is where people who threaten the CIA to expose the CIA secrets, you know, I'm in the middle of divorce. And if you don't help me get the upper hand over my uh, my spouse, I'm going to reveal that you did blah, 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 blah. And most of this stuff is just, you know, it's it's not legit. But his job, his first job is to sort through these and try and determine what actually has merit. And if there is merit, his job is to protect the agency. So he ends up across this letter that is written by a woman in jail or prison, I'm not sure, I don't remember which one, in, I think, Arizona for murder. And she basically says, you owe me. And if you don't get me out of jail, I'm going to expose this, this, and this. And she uses legitimate CIA operation code words. And so this lawyer is the one who's assigned to try and protect the agency. He's trying to figure out who this woman is, if what she knows is real, et cetera, et cetera. And it just evolves into this massive game of cat and mouse and figuring out who stabbed who in the back over what. And this woman is at the center of it, and she is so smart. To be honest, watching her on the screen was the closest I've ever seen to the way Monroe's mind works. Not like she's too she's too old for Monroe as a character, and she's too she's not Monroe, but the way her mind functions of steps ahead and figuring out how to pull so-and-so in for this and how this thing over there could actually be stabbing so-and-so over there, which I could use to do this. It's just so well thought out. And the interaction between this very, very intelligent woman who is trying to stay alive, trying to get herself to where she wants to be, and all the strings she needs to pull to do that, her pitted against the CIA, pitted against factions within the CIA, pitted against criminal elements in other um, from other countries is just 
so geniusly put together. And it's done in such a way that the tone is not dark. It is not depressing. There's violence, yes. There's gore, yes. There's It doesn't spare on any of those, but it doesn't have this sort of weighted feeling to it. It's done in a very, very enjoyable way. The dialogue is brilliant. The characters are so diverse and and just fantastic. The, the the histories of the characters, like the way all of this comes together and comes out. No notes. I mean, there's stuff in there that I'm like, yeah, that wouldn't happen in real life. That's just not how things go down. But there's small things and they're not so consequential that they would ruin the story. And all of Hollywood, from TV to screen to whatever, is filled with those types of shortcuts and whatnot. And and this had far fewer <laughs> than what you would normally see. So I was just like, where's season two? I cannot get enough of this. It is so good, so well done, so enjoyable. And, and there's nothing not to like about even the unlikable characters. They're still in some ways likable. I just, it, it's, I wish I could write books that read the way that this show did. It was really, really well done. So that was the first one. The second one is, was called The Diplomat. And this one, it took me a little bit longer to get into. I watched the first full episode and I was like, okay, maybe. By the end of the full first episode, I still wasn't entirely sure what the show was about. But by the end of the second episode, I could not get enough of this. And the story. I guess if you had summarize it, it would be like if House of Cards, I think it's House of Cards, House of Cards took place in the foreign service, but all the characters, all the backroom dealings and the the machinations and the the game playing was to try and save the world instead of backstab people to get ahead of them and hurt them. And if all the characters had something of value to contribute and you liked them, even the unlikable ones, instead of despising every single character for whatever reason. Here you can root for everybody. And they're they're flawed characters for sure. It's not like everybody's just a golden boy or a golden girl, but they're written in such a way that you you wish it could be real. You you wish politics and the foreign service was filled with people like this. It's it's amazing. So it's the story essentially follows a a middle aged woman who is has been an ambassador's wife for years, and she has become very very adept at backroom dealing. And and who knows who and who knows what to try and pull things together. She is a crisis management expert for, you know, lack of a better word. And she has spent a lot of time in the Middle East. She's an expert on Iran and Afghanistan and, and that and that part of the world. And she's on her way back to Kabul. Kabul. And she gets pulled out of that by the president and basically said, we want you to be an ambassador 
to the UK. And she doesn't want to. Like to her, that's the princess position. It's not as a position of substance. She wants to be able to make a difference in the world. And she's left people behind in Afghanistan. She's trying to help get them out. And that's where her focus is. And she's diverted into this, you know, publicity thing. Her husband is a very, very well-known and respected former ambassador who is like her, but has even more connections and is even more, um, you know, adept at pulling strings. But he's a little more mm, ethically dubious in how he goes about things. And now they're being put in a situation where she's the one who is the, the dominant figure and he's supposed to just be the ambassador's wife, which causes huge issues in their marriage. And so there's that part of it. And then there are other supporting cast characters who are involved in the State Department and the CIA. And then comes a, a big international incident. And she's the one trying to basically stop a World War III. And it's so fast moving. It's very, very dialogue heavy. The acting is superb. And I there were times watching this where I actually felt emotional in the sense of just, I can't believe how good this is. And I wish it was true. I wish it was real. To see a woman of that caliber work the scenario and have the respect that she does and play the boys game as a woman and to be just so high, so just, just I can't even find the words to explain it. It's just really, really, really good. It ends on a cliffhanger. Unfortunately, there's no season two yet that I know of, but still completely worth it. There is nothing not to like about that show unless you are really young. If you are in your 20s, you might not enjoy it because all the characters are older and it deals with, you know, old people stuff, I guess. Like just it's old people relationships. And I say old, but I'm, I, you know, I'm in that age bracket. So yeah, let's, let's make, define making old, fun yeah. of myself. Yeah, I'm making fun of myself here. But it's it's not your typical, like a, a, lot, a lot of shows really tend to focus on the prettier, younger generation, you know, rightfully so. They're more pleasant to look at and entertaining to be entertained by. But this was just such good acting. And this, the dialogue was great. Just no notes. It was just really, really well done. So two shows, one season each, The the Recruit and The Diplomat, both on Netflix, both absolutely worth your time if you enjoy political drama, um, mystery slash thriller, that type of stuff. Neither one of them are dark or depressing. Both of them keep it I don't want to say light because that makes it feel like not taking the subject matter seriously, but the tone is not heavy. It, they're very, very enjoyable in terms of emotional investment, not like 
making you feel dirty or anything like that. So that's what I got. Okay, and we are out of time. So thank you guys for listening, and we will be back with you again next week. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.